Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another. But the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, excuse me, and he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that You would open up Your Word unto us and help us to appreciate the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of grace, that all that we have or may have is all by virtue of Thy great mercy and benevolence that Thou hast, great love that Thou hast towards the saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, the primary focus of what I want to talk about is verse 6, and that's a complicated verse to understand and appreciate, so we'll get to that in a minute. But I want us to recall what things have taken place before chapter 15, because it says there, it opens with verse 1 when it says, and after these things. Well, after what things? So by virtue of that statement, we can appreciate that the Lord is tying chapter 15 with what things had taken place um, before um, chapter 15. Um, Abraham has some questions here, and I think that is true of all saints who've walked with God for a period of time, that they've got some questions about the way things are going and what things the Lord has promised them. So we remember that Abraham has come out of Ur of the Chaldees, not knowing whither he went. 
He buried his father, leaving his father in Haran, and then continued on with Lot down into the promised land. He literally walked all the way to and all the way through the promised land, all the way down to Egypt, and then back up again into the promised land, back up to the north. He covered a little over 900 miles, depending upon how, you, how his route was. That's a long way to walk. <laughs> he had his troubles in Egypt where he denied his wife. He rescued Lot from the Babylonians, was strengthened by the king of Salem, and then he suffered the temptation by the king of Sodom. I would imagine that life was probably a lot easier for Abram when he was in Ur, where he might have lived with his head buried in the sand, quietly oblivious to the internal trials and struggles and convictions of the Christian life. Think of your own Christian walk, how life really got more complicated when you became a Christian because now you look at everything from a biblical worldview and you measure things against what Christ um, has done and what truths are set before us in the Bible versus what, um, I'm going to put this in quotes, what truths the world presents in front of us, which are nothing but gaslighting um, lies. So, Abram has walked with God for a time, and he's got some questions, the most superficial of which is, where is the fruit? So I'm speaking both literally here and spiritually. The question is, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? The fruit I'm speaking about here would be the literal, the child. Where is the son that you promised me? Who is mine heir? Now, in our case, when we're looking for fruit from God, what we're really looking for in terms of our Christian walk is the fruit of the Spirit that is born in us when we are regenerated. So what we're looking for, Galatians 5.22 and 2.23 speaks of as the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. These are the things that we would like to see manifest in our lives, and sometimes we have to kind of take a snapshot of where we are now and compare it with where we used to be in our life in terms of how we dealt with the things and the problems and trials of, of the world that come upon people naturally, independent of their walk from Christ. How do we deal with things? So do we have the fruit of Christ, uh, the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our life? So the Christian life is indeed full of trials and tribulations and persecutions, which come in various forms. Some of them are benign and some of them are not. Some of them are overt, some of them are in your face, some are things that we truly suffer for, others are not. They just vex and prick our hearts. Um, as we've noted in the past, Abram's walk typifies the walk of faith. We see his various victories and we see his failures as much as we experience those in our own lives. We go about and some days we do very well. Some days um, the Lord gives us grace to get through difficult situations and other times we fall flat on our face. And Abraham here is kind of a picture of that because he's certainly done very well against the Babylonians. He's done very well with respect to the temptation uh, he faced from the king of Sodom. And yet now here he is. Um, somewhat lamentous about, okay, where's this going? Where is the fruit? Um, think of Elijah after he slayed the 400 prophets of Baal. What does he then next do? He says, oh my goodness, I'm, uh, you know, um, um, Jezebel is going to kill me, and he, and he flees, and he's afraid. And so that's not uncommon in the Christian walk. Well, one day you'll do very well. You'll, you'll uh, have wrought, God will have wrought a great victory in you and through you. And then the next day you're, you're, you're in the corner um, shaking. You're on your knees praying, Lord, Lord, help me. Um, so what we see in Abram's life, we experience in our own as well. 
But what we do see is the unfailing love and faithfulness of God towards him, and we should know that that same thing is true with respect to us and our lives. God says through Christ, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And God never does leave nor forsake Abraham nor any of the saints that he sets before us anywhere in Scripture. So as this chapter opens, we see that God says something to Abram indicative that he knows what question is on Abram's heart. For all things are naked and open unto the eyes of God. God ever knows what's in our hearts. He ever knows what fears we have. He knows what uh, misapprehensions we have. And he knows that we fail to look to him as we should, for frequently we look every which way except for up when we suffer the fears in this world. And God's going to straighten him out in a few minutes here. So though God answers Abram's question before it is asked, the question is upon Abram's heart, and he asks it anyway, apparently failing to comprehend what the Lord just said to him. Lord, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? In other words, where is the promise to make of me a great nation, seeing that I go childless? And when is this going to come to fruition? Have I not been obedient in my calling? These are implied in this question. Have I not been obedient in in thy calling? After all, here I am, I have left the promised land. Have I not forsaken all? I've left my country and my father. Does this not sound like something the disciples said? Lord, have we not forsaken all? This is common with Christians. Here I am. I feel like I'm walking in poverty in obedience to you. Where are the blessings? Abraham, by contrast, is is rich. And so he's overlooking what blessings the Lord has overgiven him. Has he not gone to war against his countrymen, which were the Babylonians? Has he not forsaken the spoils of war, the things that were given back to the kingdom, to the king of uh, Sodom when he hazarded his life to recover Lot? And so we can appreciate what's the background in the question that he's asking the Lord in terms of what wilt thou give me? So by virtue of this question and perhaps some of the things that are going through his mind, I think we can appreciate that maybe Abraham has an expectation that God owes him something, that God owes him something. And so that puts, us, puts before us the question here, is the reward to be reckoned by works or by faith? Is the reward to be reckoned by works or by faith? And that is exactly how Romans chapter 4 opens, this idea of works versus um, reward reckoned by virtue of works versus grace. Uh, Our deacon read Romans 4 uh, for us this morning. I'm going to read the first four verses again because that's where we are. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's verse 6 of Genesis 15 that we're going to talk about this morning. Now to Abraham, excuse me, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, the question set before us here, is God a debtor to man? And of course, He is not. God is not a debtor to man. Does God owe man something for what works man does? And the answer is no. And that this question is upon which 
Men revolve respecting their justification before God. That didn't sound right. This is the question that revolves around men with respect to justification. Are we justified by grace or are we justified by works? Is it by faith or is it by works? And what you believe and what you understand with respect to that question has everything to do with your eternal salvation. Whether or not you believe you are justified by your works and you are endeavoring to glory before God, or whether or not you believe you are justified by the faith of God. Verse 16, excuse me, verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 must be understood properly. It must be understood, and so to do so, God graciously interprets that verse for us at length in Romans chapter 4, which again our deacon read for us this morning. And so we will look to this verse in particular with the intent of understanding what the Lord did and what he meant in verse 6, when he said and did the things that he did. We read in chapter 15 that God comes to Abram in a vision, and we should appreciate that he first brings comfort when he says to him, fear not. Whereas Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the expressed image of his person, we note that that is very similar to how Jesus approached his disciples when he would come upon those whom he had chosen and walked with for a time. Those people that he called his friends, the Lord frequently came to his disciples and said, fear not. So we see the attributes of God manifest in Christ, which is what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, that he is the brightness of God's glory and the expressed image of his person. Now, that he would say, fear not, he knows, of course, that our hearts are frequently fearful For we often fail to trust and rest in the promises of God, the promises that he articulates for us in scriptures. We take the internal, we take the eternal promises of God for temporal ones and then wonder why they've not been fulfilled in our temporal, physical lives as though God were not faithful or I lacked somehow in faith when they've already been fulfilled in our eternal lives by virtue of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I'm going to read that again because I know it's a mouthful. This is kind of name it, claim it theology, where you feel like if you name something and you believe it, you shall receive it. But again, what God speaks about in his scripture are primarily eternal promises, not temporal ones. So we take the eternal promises of God for temporal ones, and then wonder why they've not been fulfilled in our temporal, physical lives as though God were not faithful, or I lacked in faith, when they've already been fulfilled in our eternal lives by virtue of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We think God, whom Scripture says is the great physician, will heal us from physical infirmities because Jesus did so in the Gospel accounts when what is really set before us parabolically, is Christ healing people from the effects of sin. That is what's being taught in the Gospels. And that Christ did when he went to the cross. And as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the problem of sin has been dealt with for all of God's elect, including Abram, who lived thousands of years before Jesus went to the cross. So, Ephesians 1, four says that he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Our salvation was secure in Christ from the foundation of the world. It says before the foundation of the world, because indeed Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And 
What it means is we would be holy and without blame. In other words, the problem of sin would be dealt with. We would be holy and without blame before him in love. This is a promise, this is a promise of God. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that all the promises of God in him, that would be in Christ, are yea, and in him, in Christ, amen, unto the glory of God by us. So all of the promises have already really been fulfilled in so much as Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God here tells Abraham that he, God, is his exceeding great reward. That is an eternal reality, not just something to look forward to, but something that can be enjoyed right now for all of us in terms of our relationship with God through Christ. He is our exceeding great reward. However, Abraham here can only think of the temporal, which again is common for us too. We get caught up in the affairs of this world and the sin that so easily besets us. Abraham is looking for a son with whom the promise of a great nation will begin. He's looking down one generation, not understanding how God will fulfill that promise, nor what it really means. That in him, that is in Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and what the relationship between those things are, that the Lord is his shield and his exceeding great reward." He doesn't understand that what Lord is talking about is that Christ will come from him. And so he's looking only for a physical son, but the God is speaking about the spiritual seed that will be the result or be the, um, um, the result or the end of God's promise here. That is what's really in view here. Now, it's evident that Abram doesn't understand these things because he asked the question, what will thou see me seeing I go childless? And then he points towards the steward of his house, this Eliezer of Damascus, or perhaps somebody who was born in this house, born in his house, as were the 318 that went up with him against the Babylonians um, when they went to recover Lot. So he's looking, um, he's looking horizontal, if I can use that language, about what the fulfillment of the promise would be. He's looking to, is this going to be Eliezer? Or is it going to be somebody born in my house? How is this going to work out? Now, later, at Sarah's suggestion, he's going to look to Hagar, as a means to help God fulfill the promise of a son. So still, clearly he's going to be struggling with this uh, promise for a period of time. What he fails to do when he goes and lies with Hagar is the basics of marriage, and that's why it's important for us to understand some of the most basic truths in Scripture. He is one flesh with his wife, Sarah. Promises to Abram are promises to Sarai. So he is one flesh with Sarah, so that when God says in verse 4 here, that the promise will be through one born of his own bowels, it means that the child will be born of Sarai, with whom he is one flesh with, and he's not talking about the birth through a concubine. He's not one flesh with the concubine, but he's one flesh with Sarai. So the promise will be fulfilled that way. Now, all of this is to say that there are two conversations taking place here, one where God speaks truth, dealing with the eternality of the promises, and the other where Abraham or Abraham cannot see past his nose. He's thinking temporal, he's thinking superficial, he's just thinking in terms of the immediacy of the fulfillment of a particular promise as he understands it. So what does God do here? Something he needs to do to every one of us every once in a while. He gets our face out of the dirt, 
out of the foolishness and corruption which this present world is evilly, excuse me, is mired in, what this present world is, evil world is mired in, the world that once drowned in, and the world that will yet be burned up in, and makes us look up. He needs to get us out of this snow dome mentality that the heavens and God's glory go little farther than the clouds, which the Bay Area is typically shrouded in, which block the lights of the stars, and what heavenly night, uh, what night we see the light at is typically the light reflected under the belly of the clouds. We typically here, especially in the springtime, cannot see the glory of the stars. You need to get out of the Bay Area, away from the light pollution, and get up and look and view the glory of the Lord. So what the Lord does, what God does here, is get him out of himself, get us out of ourselves, and cause him to look at him and his glory, for the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. In verse 5 of Genesis 15, we read, And God brought Abram forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So God takes Abram out, out of himself, and what things were fashioned by human hands, and has him endeavor to count the stars, to behold the heavens. Now, God Almighty is the possessor of heaven and earth. He spoke everything into existence. To tell or count the stars, each of which possess a glory unique to itself, for one star differ from another star in glory. So he's having Abraham get up and look and behold the glory of the firmament, glory of the heavens, the glory of the stars. See if you can count the numbers of them, for God spoke every one of those into existence. And when he's up there looking and pondering these things, the Lord says to him, So shall thy seed be, which we infer to mean both in number and in glory. So what is the Lord talking about here? What seed is in view here? Would God have Abram behold the heavenly stars and declare his glory as a means to tell him that he's simply going to have a lot of kids? God later tells Abraham that he will make a great nation out of Ishmael, uses similar language. So clearly, our heavenly-minded God has something different in view here. He's, simply not, he's not telling him you're simply going to have a bunch of kids here. He's talking about something that is uh, beyond that. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, it tells us that, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. There's a different group of people that are in view here. Romans chapter 9 verse 8 says that the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So we're talking about a a seed here that's not related to the flesh, but rather one which is of faith. Those are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3.16 tells us that ultimately the seed that in view is Christ. Galatians 3.16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is in Christ. So the innumerability of the glorious stars testifies to the number of the children of faith, plural, which shall be in Christ, singular. But what land is Abraham going to inherit? What is in view there? Well, Romans chapter 4, verse 13 tells us that Abraham should be the heir of the world. 
cosmos is the word used in the Greek there. Abraham should be the heir of the world. Here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, we note that there are no dimensions given and that Abraham shall inherit it. Pay attention to the word inherit there. I want you to flip over to verse 18 of Genesis 15, and you contrast that with the word given. In that verse, in 18, he says, unto thy seed have I given this land. To inherit something and to be given something are two very different things. It's not given to Abraham. He's going to inherit it. Now, keep in mind, for Abraham to inherit something, the possessor of it has to die and bequeath it to him in a testament. Hebrews 9.16 says, for where, uh, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So the Lord is teaching us a number of things here. So things are starting to come together here to help us to understand what God is talking about. Somebody, the possessor, has to die for Abram to inherit the land. Who is the possessor of it? We have twice been told in Genesis chapter 14 that the Lord God Almighty is the possessor of heaven and earth. So when we put all of this together, when in Genesis 15, 1, the Lord says to Abraham, I am thy shield and thy grating and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham asked the question, Lord, what, Lord God, what will thou give me seeing I go childless? The reality of the answer is this. As your exceeding great reward, I will give my son, Jesus Christ, who is one with me and whom you will be one with me. I will give him, who is the almighty God, to die on the cross so that you will inherit the new heaven and earth. And this is how you should know that you will inherit the land, because then Abraham asked the question, how will I know? And this is how you know that you're going to do it. The Lord then proceeds to show him through the sacrifice of several different animals, all of which typify the offering of Christ himself. Each one of those and the entirety of it points to Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross. So Lord willing, we'll look at those next week. But now I want to go into verse 6 because all of this revolves around verse 6 of Genesis 15. It says here, and he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Given all that's been set before us here, I think we can agree that God did not impute righteousness to Abram because Abram believed a simple promise that um, God would grant him to have a physical seed, a physical child. Obviously, again, there's more going on here than that. Given this statement, immediately follows God bringing Abraham forth abroad to look heavenward, we can appreciate that when he does so, there is a sense of heavenly eternality, the immeasurable depth and expanse of space and time to which the stars seem to testify alludes to this. We should appreciate that God is indeed speaking to the eternality of life and heavenly glory for Abraham's seed, which is Christ, and by virtue of the innumerable stars, all of those in Christ, Abraham's spiritual seed. I can't help but wonder how Abraham could apprehend all of these spiritual truths without God giving him the faith to do so. He's certainly not the first person to look up at the stars in contemplation of life. The world has never lacked for philosophers. 
The answer, of course, is that he did not figure out how man might be made right with God. He's a descendant of a long line of idolaters, which God gently reminds him in verse 7 when he says, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's reminding him of where he came from and what things he was involved with when he was back in Ur of the Chaldees. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 tells us that faith is a gift. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. That is to say, the faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should both. Faith is a gift from God. John chapter 6 tells us that our believing in the redemptive offering of Christ, the seed, is a work of God. In John 6, 29, the Lord says, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Christ was sent by God. That you can believe on Christ is a work of God. That Abraham believed God here would most certainly be that work of God and a gift of God. Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. That means Abraham too. We can further appreciate that what Abraham believed, it was given to him by God who brought him out of idolatry to believe. And so having received the gift of faith, it then follows in chapter 15, verse 6, that the Lord counted it, the faith given to him, for righteousness. Again, keeping in mind that Christ is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So what is written in the book of Romans applies to Abraham just as it does to you and me. And the Lord says that in, in chapter 4. He says, these things were not not written for Abram's benefit only, but for you and me too who believe after the manner of Abram. It's always been the same. Salvation has always been the same. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous. No, not one. That includes Abram. Verse 12, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. That includes Abram. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes Abram. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, But we are all, that would include Abram, as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all, we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. That includes Abram. Now, in the fifth chapter of Romans, the Lord lays three truths before us so that we can appreciate that um, we were without faith when Christ died for us and justified us. Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That includes Abram. Verse 8, But God commended his loves towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall save by his, his life. So it says here that we were ungodly, um, we were sinners, and we were enemies when he died for us. That includes Abraham. So again, that helps us to understand that we were without faith when Christ Jesus died for us. So we were without faith when we were justified by Christ Jesus when he was raised from the dead and died in our stead. When we believe, which we do when we receive the gift of faith from God, righteousness, which is the result of our justification, do Christ's work, 
is imputed to us or reckoned or accounted. That's the same Greek word to us through the faith that has been given to us. It is accounted to us or imputed to us or reckoned to us through the gift of faith, just as it was to Abram. It has always been through the gift of faith that certain men are made right with God. Nothing has ever changed in that regard. God has concluded all men under sin. In Galatians 3, 8 and 9, we read, And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. If you believe in the Lord, as verse 6 speaks about, believe on him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, righteousness shall be imputed to you just as it was to Abram. Again, nothing's changed. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That God gave him the faith to believe in God and then he imputed the righteousness to him. Romans chapter 4 verse 6 clearly states that it is without works. That is to say, it is without your works. Clearly, it is a work of God, as we have already stated. God's work, that you believe on Christ, and God's work on the cross. The righteousness resulting from justification, God then imputes to his elect. All of this is a work of God, which Abraham, like us, are the recipients of. It is a blessing from God. There could be no greater reward, put that in quotes, that a man could receive than to receive the Lord. For it is indeed an exceeding great reward for which we shall all be eternally grateful because it means eternal life in eternal fellowship with the eternal God in eternal glory. So having shared with us all of those things about verse 6 there, about how important it is for us to understand that, because if you believe that you are justified by works of yours, then you are standing before God in your own unrighteousness, which the Lord says are as filthy rags. If you believe on the Lord that what things he did for you justified you, then that faith that was given to you as a gift is imputed to you for righteousness. I want to make a couple more comments on um, what the Lord said in verse 1 there and tie it in with verse 15. In verse 1, he says, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield. And then in verse 15, he says, And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. And I appreciate that the Lord brings him this wonderful sense of comfort. Abraham, as you know, is living in a hostile land. He is living in a land where people are sacrificing their children to Moloch. They are literally burning them alive to a false god. What things he has seen has caused him to fear for his own life. They are engaged in sexual perversions there that we should not even speak about, but you can read about them in the, pro in the prohibitions given in the Mosaic Law. What things he tells the Israelites to not do, he tells them that because they're doing those things in the land of Canaan. Abraham, Abraham, as I mentioned, he's clearly fearing for his life as evidenced when he denied his wife equivocating that she was his sister when he went down into Egypt. He's going to do it again. So he's going to receive this promise. He's going to rest in it. And then he's going to do the same thing we all do. He's going to forget about it. And then he's going to fall on his face again. And that's the nature of the Christian walk. So God brings him comfort here that he need not fear for his life, that he will grow to his grave in peace 
at a good old age. In other words, he's going to live a long time and he's going to die a normative death and go to his fathers in glory because God is his shield and shall watch over him and protect him from the evil peoples of this world. Now, this is a problem given to Abraham, so I would not own this promise in my own life save this. God is sovereign over all things. By him, all things consist. He's keeping everything glued together. The planets are in their orbits, and the atomic particles remain in their orbits. He is sovereign over all peoples. Nothing will ever happen to us that God's hand is not in. Again, he's sovereign over everything, every event that happens. He controls everything. Nothing is going to happen to me that is outside of his purveyance, that is outside of his sovereignty. Our days are numbered, and we have an appointment with death, which is the portal through which we enter into the glory of the Lord. Until that day comes, until my appointment with death comes, the Lord will shepherd me and you and every one of us so that we never fear what man might do unto us. We need but rest in Christ and be busy about his work. Our end is sure in Christ. We shall rest with our fathers in glory. For God has given Christ to us just as he did to Abram. I'm not saying none of us will die a violent death. I have no idea the means and agency by which Christ will bring me home. I just know that when he brings me home, it is by his hand, and I will rest in that. That we, as Abraham did, we shall all go to our, our Heavenly Father, having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, I'll say amen. amen.